My problem is, is I'm kind of like three people, right? There's like the candidate politician guy, and then there's the consultant, and then there's the activist. And I still very much think of myself as the activist out there with the digital armies that I'm helping. And I see it from all three perspectives. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is David Yankovich, managing partner at Endeavor Digital Group, which is a social media strategy firm that advises clients in the political space on how to better use all social media platforms. He's also an advisor to Demcast. David has a good story about how he got into politics through posting on social media, which led to a brief run for Congress against former Speaker Ryan, and then to political consulting for Doug Jones, Carolyn Maloney, and others. We spoke before the midterm election, where he was in Oklahoma working on Kendra Horn's run for U.S. Senate. David has a lot to say about how far we need to go in using social media on our side. He's an interesting guy. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with David Yankovich with Endeavor Digital Group. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. So my name is David Yankovich. I uh, work on campaigns. I'm advising. Got started in uh, 2016 after Donald Trump won the election. I got on social media and I, I noticed that there was an issue, a communications breakdown online when Donald Trump won because a lot of people were terrified and having a really hard time with his win but there weren't any elected officials or anything that were out there just saying, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, we, we got your back. I was completely outside the industry. I was working in property management before that in banking. And I noticed that this was a big issue. And then my accounts kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger from the content that I was putting out. I had a couple of really big viral tweets and started networking with the party and doing that stuff and eventually led me to run for Congress in Wisconsin against Paul Ryan. From there, Senator Jones in 2017 took me to Alabama and I worked on his Senate race and advised him. And then on after that one, I went to Michigan and helped Gretchen Whitmer and Debbie Stabenow and Jocelyn Benson and the female top ticket there get um, one, which is the first time it was an all-female top ticket. Um, helped out Carol Maloney in New York City, done a lot of work with PACs and kind of all around the country, training Democrats on how to use social media more effectively and because of the power of social media, um, you know, my career has gone a lot from just online to kind of all encompassing on the campaigns. This touches everything. You have your fundraising as a part of the social media now. You have your communications, you have your field teams, 
all of it kind of goes through this. So it's kind of taken me from, um, it's funny because a lot of people get into this and they, they want to become like a general consultant and that's where they're heading towards. And for me, I always wanted just to be the strategist in my own lane, but it's kind of taken me into the, the general consulting angle piece of this and the bigger arcing strategy because of the importance of social media. Over the last, you know, five years, I've worked on some of the, the bigger upset campaigns. And that's always what I try to choose to do. It's really important for me to, to find the good candidates out there that a lot of people just don't pay attention to or don't get excited about until the end when they start seeing the numbers getting close. I, I like those underdog races. And that does sound fun. I'm sure it's a lot of work. <laughs> fun and exhausting. <laughs> I mean, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and your path before the world of politics. Sure. Yeah. This is something I haven't got a chance to talk about too much. Before I got into politics, I worked in property management and banking. I grew up in Barberton, Ohio. And then when I was about 14, I moved down to Florida and grew up in an area called Port St. Lucie, which is about 50 miles north of West Palm Beach. I split my childhood between Ohio and Florida, which are two pretty different places to grow up. So that's that's kind of where it all started. And then uh, I joined the Navy when, when I turned 18 and um, I went into Navy intelligence. I was studying that and I had an injury. So I was in for, I think it was eight months or nine months. And um, I had a surgery when I was a kid and that acted up and um, I ended up getting discharged early. My whole dream in my entire life was to become a Navy Master Chief. And, you know, the path that I was on was, you know, taking Naval intelligence and I just thought that was like the, the be all end all. And I still do. Like I would trade everything I'm doing right now if I could be in the military doing my intelligence and maybe trying to get the master chief still. But it didn't work that way. I spent 10 years of my life trying to get back in. I went to doctors and showed that I was good and, and really fought and fought and fought. And, uh, I could never, never get back there. So what was it about the military and military intelligence that you wanted so bad to do it? When you're an 18 year old kid, having the ability to do something like that, no one else gets to do it. You know, I had a top secret clearance at 18 years old. It's a career that is unique and it's different. But the biggest thing on it though was like it was the only place I'd ever felt like I really had a home and had, you know, that camaraderie. It's kind of like a joined experience. Like there's a lot of times the military isn't fun. But it's always amazing when you have your friends with you, you know, your band of brothers around you. And, and I love that. I, I love the relationships. I like the dynamic. I like the structure of everything because I am not the most structured person in the world. So having a force structure on me is actually really good. It was that. I mean, the, the job was amazing and the opportunities were, but really it was just, I felt like I had a home with the people around me. I had, Friends who, to this day, I mean, it's been over 20 years now um, since I went to basic training and Intel school. I went in 2005, so not over 20 years, but close. And my brother actually just graduated and kind of following the steps that I took there. You don't really, especially as an adult, you don't make a lot of really good new friends or anything. And for me in the military, and I think, I think for a lot of people out there, you know, it really does become like your family, especially when you came from places where your family, you know... Um, I don't want to say like broken homes or anything like that. But when you came from a difficult upbringing or childhood, and then, you know, you have finally some stability in a group of people around you who are really solid and want to see what's going, what's the best for you. 
You have leaders who look after you and they really take molding young men and women seriously. And that mentoring is something that's a big part of who they are. And that's really what the military was for me. Taught me everything that I know about the world, really. I wasn't, you know, when I first got there, I, I could barely even know how to shave consistently without cutting my face all up or waking up at 5.30 and going and PTing and doing that kind of stuff. The militaries gave me probably 90% of the tools that I have in the business world or in the political world. In this industry too, you know how it is, you know, you have very powerful senators and members of Congress or the White House or whoever, you have to be able to have some military bearing and be able to talk and speak truth to power. <laughs> you know, When you've gotten yelled at for, you know, months and months at a time, it makes politics a lot easier too. Did you get more education when you couldn't continue with the military or did you just go into the working world? I went into the working world. I didn't know until I was like 33 or 32 years old that I had ADD. And uh, so for me, like school was torture unless it was something that like I was super into sitting down and, you know, sitting in a chair for eight hours and doing all the homework and everything that came out of it. Like for me, it was like, I know that I'm not responsible enough to do this yet. I'll come back to it if I think I can or should. And I wish I would have as soon as I got out. I never did. I ended up going into a property management I ran uh, luxury residential communities. I did that for about eight years. And then I know our two or three years I worked in uh, banking, ended up going from a personal banking to a corporate training and development. And I was doing that for a while. I never did the degree. And it's kind of uh, one of those things now where, you know, at the place I'm at in my career, where I look at this and I'm the only person <laughs> like that I know that made it out of my town. And I'm the only person in politics, I think, that I've really come across that has a background like mine, that I just like sheer force of will, you know, wanting to do this and get into it, that uh, that kind of made the difference for me. But I definitely have a little bit of chip on my shoulder for you Yale guys. <laughs> well, and rightly so. Was there a point where you became political or were you always... I've always been political, but my mom worked for the National Association of Letter Carriers. And in 1996, in October, she got a couple tickets to see Hillary Clinton in Akron, Ohio. And, um, and so she took me. And so I go to this rally. I don't remember anything that she said there. I just remember seeing you have the Secret Service and you have the crowds and, and everything else. And I, I'd never experienced anything like that before and how important it was. And this is during Bill Clinton's reelect. So like there was the bicycle racks and one of the secret service guys just picks me up some, and puts me on the other side of this bicycle rack. And I look up and there's Hillary Clinton and she comes walking up to me and she's like, Oh my God, like you're so cute. Thanks for coming out to see me. What'd you think? And what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like looking around and I'm like, I think I want to be you. <laughs> this is pretty amazing, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but after that, I mean, I was always that kid that was sitting around reading encyclopedias and being that nerd. But after that, it was like all politics. It was, you know, government and, you know, reading about Lincoln and history and presidents and everything else. And then when I went in the military, you know, I was so interested in politics and I, I got out and I tried to volunteer for campaigns and things like that. And I wouldn't even get phone calls back from people trying to even just say, Hey, I want to help out unless it was like, we want you to go and, you know, knock on doors or do whatever, which is great but I could never actually get like a, a gig on a campaign, you know, over those 10 years of me trying to get back in the Navy and doing that. And then I was trying to figure out how to do politics and get into it and finagle my way in. I mean, as far back as I can remember, I've always been like patriotic and I've always wanted to be in the room where those big, important decisions are made and, 
and those those conversations are had, you know, and kind of the front page of history. It's always inspired me to that drives me more than anything else. It sounds like the election of Trump must have affected you because you do jump into that congressional race quickly after. What was your reaction to his win? I was pissed. I was with my um, ex at the time with the mother of my son, and uh, she had a daughter. She was 10 years old, and that was, you know, in 2016. So it was 20 years to the day since I had met Hillary Clinton. And I took them to a Hillary rally in Fort Pierce, Florida. And it was my son. He was five at the time, and she was 10. And everybody is in a good mood. We're all waiting in line outside. All the supporters are out there joking around and having fun with each other. And then we get to the front of the line and there's Donald Trump supporters covered in fake blood, dressed as terrorists, you know, have American flags that are out there and Confederate flags and Nazi flags and screaming. And the thing was, is like the police didn't really have it separated. So when you're going into this venue, there's like maybe five feet of separation between us and them. And they're holding up pictures of mutilated babies and all this terrible stuff and screaming at people. And my kids, they called Arissa basically my daughter, they called her a, a little bitch because she was crying. And I'm just, I mean, I'm livid. And then I go inside with them and, you know, we see Hillary and everything, but the whole mood, the whole spell was broken. And as we were driving home, um, you know, like nobody, like they didn't talk, they weren't in a good mood. And then she said to her grandma that night, I know that like meeting Hillary, like did a lot for David, made him want to do a lot in politics as a kid. I don't ever want to do this again. I had taken her in 2012 to an Obama rally and she got to meet Obama. She, she was on my shoulders and they came up. And so she was kind of my political buddy. And after that, she never wanted anything to do with this again. And that pissed me off. She got demobilized deliberately. Yeah. Uh, I, in the, and that's the same thing that a lot of the Trump people and a few people from other campaigns were doing online. They were making it so people didn't want to support Hillary online because they would get attacked in the comment section or the equivalent. That's exactly what I started doing back. So that happened. Trump gets elected right after. And I so basically that happens. I resigned from my job and I, I just was over the property management stuff. And I, I was talking to my mom at the time and she was like, David, it's time for you to get into politics. And I'm like, mom, I don't have a degree. I don't have the experience. Like no one gives a shit, you know, no one cares about me and doing this. And she was like, you'll figure it out. And, uh, then next thing I know, I had a tweet that went massively viral and then it just kept going and going and going. And so then, is this just a tweet under your own name? Yeah. It's not an organization. Yeah, it was, yeah, it it was, just, you were just saying what you felt. It was, it was like two o'clock in the morning or midnight or whatever. And I fired something off. And next thing I know, you know, like two minutes later, it was like at 3,000 retweets. And then it was like at 70,000. Do you remember what you said? We hate Donald Trump like you hated President Obama, except we hate Trump because he's racist. You hate Obama because you're racist. And that just went like all over the place. And then that led me to running for Congress. And as I was preparing to do that, I was actually planning to do it in uh, Florida. And, um, and I was kind of getting into it and everything else. And then my mom overdosed on opioids. And she uh, aspirated into our lungs and she was in a coma for 21 days. And so like the person who believed in me and the person who was pushing me and who was there with me side by side, you know, and really supporting me on trying to do this, like they're telling me that she's brain dead and she's never going to be back again. And you have to make these medical decisions. And I had talked to one of the people who had ran against Paul Ryan earlier and they had asked me if I would think about coming to Wisconsin and challenging him and nationalizing the race. 
the last couple of people who had ran against them weren't able to raise a lot of money or get a lot of firepower into it. I was in the hospital room with my mom. Paul Ryan comes on TV and he's laughing about trying to repeal Obamacare. And I'm watching my mom laying in this hospital bed and she came out of the coma and she died last year. So I got a couple more years with her. But, you know, I'm looking at her and like, she's going to be brain dead. She's not coming out of this. She's going to be gone. I'm just, this guy's trying to basically kill my mom. Like someone's, someone's got to do something. And I'm in a position right now where people seem to like what I have to say, what I'm trying to do. So screw it. You know, I'm going to go in, I'm going to retire his ass. So I uh, ended up going to Wisconsin and got into the race and um, things were heading pretty well for me until Randy Bryce had like the most epic campaign ad of all time. (laughs) And uh, that derailed me. What was that at? That was, the, that was the one where he said, uh, Paul Ryan, I'll go to D.C. and you stay here and work the iron. <laughs> yeah, that was a miscalculation on my campaign on that one. I was waiting to put my ad out and uh, and he uh, he came right in with it. He raised $577,000 the first day and was on Lawrence O'Donnell that night. And I, I ended up calling Randy up and I was just kind of like, I'm not from here. You are. I understand. You know, I'm going to back you up. And because like the way I'm thinking about this is like someone's got to beat this guy. And if, if I spend all my money in this primary trying to beat you or you spend all your money trying to beat me, both of us are going to get our asses kicked by the unlimited money he's going to have. So, like, let's try to consolidate what we have. I'll get behind you here and, you know, and we'll we'll go. And uh, and then, you know, Randy and me did that. Paul Ryan announced that he was retiring. Brian Style ended up uh, being the person he ran against and ended up winning, you know. So, uh, but at least we got Paul Ryan out of there. And that's quite a, a beginning adventure into politics. Well, right after that, I got a call from Joe Trippi, who's Doug Jones's guy. And uh, he's like, man, there's this guy in Alabama. And you got to look into him. I think that you're really going to like him. And he's running for Senate or going to run for Senate here. And uh, he's a really, really long shot dark horse, but he's one of the best men I know. And so I look into it and I'm like, holy crap. Like he prosecuted the Klan, Eric Rudolph civil rights. And this is on a Friday. And I'm like, get me to Alabama. And on Sunday morning, I'm sitting in Birmingham with Doug Jones. So I went from that race straight into that Alabama race. And then we came back from 40 points behind and won. I talked to uh, Trippy about that race, I remember, and uh, on this podcast. And he was just telling me about how hard they were working to keep it from being nationalized. How did he spot you to call you? Well, he was advising me on my congressional um, oh, I see. I see. Yeah, so he was my GC, and then uh, then afterwards we hadn't talked for you know a couple months, and uh, yeah, and he just randomly had uh, called me up one day, and he was just like, you know, we need some social media support in this thing, and we don't even know what we don't know on this piece of it. This is you know back then it was so freaking new what was happening, but on that race I was able to do things that no other campaign would have ever let me do if it would have been like a official DSCC campaign because in the beginning there no one cared about us. You know, we were, you know, we were just running right after John Ossoff had gotten into, you know, his race. He raised 30 million and lost. And here we are in a Senate race in Alabama. Nobody gave us a prayer. Getting into that race and, and into that stuff was, was big. But yeah, I mean, what, what Trippy did there was genius, especially, you know, not nationalizing the race. We had to turn people away a lot. Yeah. So Trippy, of course, had that background with the Dean campaign of being very open to technological innovation and experimentation on the campaign. How much had you talked about social media and its role in politics? And where do you think he was and where were you at that time? We talked about pretty extensively because of my race. And that was one of the the big background pieces that, you know, I felt like was missing in the party. And one of the reasons why I ran, he knew pretty much where I was and he knew that 
I was thinking about things in a different way. I don't think that he knew how much he was bargaining for by bringing me into that race. We'd gotten into it and, you know, really had some conversations. And back then it was 2016, 2017, you know, that kind of time frame. So what we know now about like a lot of the disinformation and everything else was more guesswork and hunches. There wasn't a strategy back then. Like we had never, you know, we weren't really fighting back on social media. They weren't taking social media seriously at all then. At least now they're tweeting a little bit more and stuff. But, you know, at that moment, like there was no peer to peer organizing or any of that, like orchestrated social media stuff or pushing back against the disinformation online. Like we really weren't doing much of that at that point on the organizing piece of it. I don't know any other campaign that had organized like we had online, like you would in field, you know, up until that point. We probably were with the first one, but we might not be. I, maybe there was others that were kind of doing it. But that, I think that was the first time where we kind of blended our field teams and our digital teams into digital field, real life field. And it's almost like having a digital campaign happening where you have the comms going out, you have the fundraising, you have everything else, but it's just virtual. And I think that was the first time that that had happened. And when we got into it in Alabama, I mean, it all kind of just came naturally, too, because there was a lot of ideas and thoughts that I had that I wanted to put into place that I hadn't seen happen before. Being able to get down there, it's kind of like I had, I wouldn't say complete the ability to do whatever, but they gave me a lot of free reign on that race to to really dig into like the organizing pieces of it or like the campaign slogan became right side of history. And I came up with right side of history on that one because well, for a couple of reasons, I mean, it really framed the race perfectly. But the biggest thing was we needed to get people out there, especially the Democrats, to understand that we had to fight no matter what. It's not about whether we win or lose sometimes. Sometimes it's about drawing the line in the sand. We're running against the Klansmen in Alabama, basically. We have to be in this race. And that's that was the whole thing about right side of history. And that kind of brought more people into the race that I think, you know, made people know the stakes of it. From there, you know, building out a true digital army, you know, a group of people who supported Doug Jones and supported that race. And they still do. Those people still exist. They organize and they get the message out. They push back on disinformation. They they really get into it deep. That race kind of started off with all of it. And, you know, to Trippy's credit, he thought of me in that and, and brought me in. I, would, don't, I wouldn't be in politics as far as I have gotten without him believing in me in that first moment there. I mean, you said you got a lot of latitude. What were some of the things that you did given that ability to, to do what you wanted to do? In terms of helping in writing some of the speeches, specifically for social media, we did a speech in, you know, Daphne, and it was a really powerful speech on the ghost of Alabama's past and history and everything there, kind of building that out as a, you know, with video and cutting it immediately, rapid response kind of stuff. There was like, obviously like the hashtag, the digital army, you know, cause I was digital director and in the part, you know how this works, a digital person, you know, who's doing the campaign, they're focused on the email, the text messaging programs, et cetera, et cetera. But with me, I was doing all that, but then they also let me, okay, let me build out a digital army here. Let me get influencers together. Let me figure out a way to bring the people who can't help us into a place where they can, because we don't want to nationalize the race, but we want people talking about the race. We don't want other people out there who are on the national side framing this race in a way that we don't want it framed. They let me do a lot of that or, you know, making campaign ads, that kind of stuff being in the editing room and a lot of just really innovative stuff. But the biggest thing that was on there was just the way that we we did digital. We really got into Roy Moore's head so much on that, that his campaign even ended up blocking us. 
from our account. And that gave us like two more months of, you know, media because it was like on top of everything else, like he can't even handle having a conversation online. It was stuff like that. And it was like a, a million little things. Did you guys use a, like a, one of the email firms, one of the digital firms as a consultant beyond Trippy? Yeah, we did. Which one? We used uh, Mothership on that first race. What did you think of them as collaborators in that? Um, I mean, that's tough. It's tough to say because I'm friendly with them, but I mean, for me, and this is the, and this isn't just a mothership problem. This is a democratic party problem. Our email firms, they don't care about persuasion and they don't care whether you win or lose. They don't care about the messaging. They don't care about anything except the fundraising. And so they go and just, you know, say you have a list of a hundred thousand by the end of the race. I mean, they just over and over again, repetitively beat the crap out of your list and they don't care if people drop off. And again, this isn't just mothership. It's a problem and people out there know it. So like when you see Tim Ryan right now, you know, campaigning and saying, I have to walk into a meeting in 10 minutes and can you forward me $15,000? Cause I have to tell my finance director that I don't have the funds. And people out there, you know, they're giving you your, their last $10, $15. They believe in you. They believe what you're saying. And if you have a finance director that you have to update on the money, you need to fire that guy. Like they're full of crap on this stuff. And people know it out there and it's hurting our brand as Democrats and it's, it's hurting our credibility. And so like even in that one, you know, and like with that race, I had to take over a lot of the emails that went out and I had to make sure that I was getting into every single one of them and doing it because, you know, the digital firms and stuff, they don't care. Well, they do vary somewhat. And, and Mothership is kind of at the one of the extremes in in the way that they approach it, I think. Yeah. And I mean, it's not really a knock on them. It's a business model, you know, and, and they got a business to run. I, I understand why. But as a party, this is on us. We're not really guiding this and saying like enough, you know, it's we're we're not saying that this is hurting our brand and we need to stop doing this. And, you know, so like it's it's not the industry problem. I mean, it's capitalism and you want to make money and you want to raise money for campaigns. And, you know, it's that. But, you know, and one of the things is there was a guy on Doug Jones's campaign, one of Doug's best friends. His name was Giles Perkins. And this is the toughest, probably smartest political strategist that I'd ever met in my life. And he ended up passing away. But he had told me, and this is probably the best advice I ever got in politics. Sometimes money isn't as important as winning. Like, what's the cost? You know, like, yeah, sure. We can go up on national news here and we'll probably raise $500,000 tonight. But is that $500,000 worth us losing 25,000 votes in rural areas and contrasting that? Or like these emo programs, you know, or whatever. Sometimes it's not all about the money. We know that because Republicans are, you know, we're, we're out raising them three to one right now and we're barely hanging on to power. So like it's it's a hundred percent true, and so we're leaving a lot on the field by having that that practice there. Tell me about working with Doug Jones. I know you still are, right? So mm -hmm. so you must have obtained a good relationship. What is he like as a candidate and I don't know boss? <laughs> it always sounds like BS when I say this, but he's the best guy I know, and not just in politics, but like as a person, like. I had a bad breakup a couple of years ago and he literally would call me every couple of weeks just to check in on something like that. Or when my parents passed away, like literally probably every other day I was talking with him or he would have his wife call or whatever. As a human being, he is the best guy I know. He's a boy scout. He was almost attorney general. And, and he, he, that is who he is as a person. Like that's the way that he's guided is by the law. And he's got such a, 
he's got such a big, deep respect for like the institutions, the halls of the Senate and the, the government. And like he he sees things differently than a lot of people, but also like, he's just really, really good at this. And he's able to talk to people and and give them medicine, but have them walk away from it feeling like they just had a positive experience. Campaign wise, he's you know he's great on the campaign. Speaking wise, he's great speaking, and he just never gets tired. I don't know how he does it. Like right now, he's traveling the country, and I think he's I think in the last week he's been in what seven states or eight states, and you know it's all day. You get in at five a.m. and you're going till midnight, and he's doing it every day. There's not very many people that I that I know that I respect more than Doug Jones. Something weird about the country, weird about the state of Alabama, that it took him running against a guy as enormously flawed as Roy Moore to get in and that he can get beaten by a really unimpressive football coach for re-election. Yeah, that was tough. First, that was during COVID. No one was campaigning either. We saw a lot of losses happen on that one. But yeah, I mean, it says a lot about the country and it says a lot about where we are and everything. But we didn't have help in, in that race in 20, you know, like it wasn't like the DSCC was, you know, in it with us or they didn't um, think it was party. winnable, I guess. Yeah. They didn't think it was winnable. And, you know, that's the thing that's like the short sightedness that, you know, really bothers me a lot about the party here because maybe it's not, but you have to show up. Like you have a Democrat in the South. We haven't had a Democrat in the South in what, however many years, you know, and you have a good one. I firmly believe that Doug Jones's win in 2017 in that December is what propelled us in 2018 with the hope that we could actually win this stuff and get it back. You have a guy like him who's kind of bigger than party sometimes because of like the hope he gave people in that first race. And so, you know, by, you know, basically, you know, letting him take a 20 point beating, it's kind of like the party's taking a 20 point beating at the same time. He's someone who people really respect and look to and like, I'm still pretty kind of peeved about that. And this happens across the country too. Like, I can't tell you how many great people would, you know, could run and be amazing candidates. And they tell me, why would I? Like, I'm not running from my state. I'm not doing this. They're never going to come out and help me. I'm not going to go out there and get promised that they're going to come and back me up and get supported. And then they're going to hang me out to dry in the last second. And I'm going to get a 30 point beating or a 40 point beating in front of everybody, you know, and with no help, no support, no resources and give a two years off my life for that. People don't want to run in that scenario. And then you watch like the Heidi Hyde camps and the Doug Jones and the Joe Donnelly's and, you know, all these different senators and members who have lost over the last couple of years who the party's really just left behind and jettisoned off. I think that that's really wrongheaded. I, you know, we have to be able to compete everywhere, especially when we have, you know, Jamie Harrison raising $160 million, Sarah Gideon raising 90 million or 80 million, having 10 million left over, Amy McGrath having over a hundred million. Then you have Jones in Alabama trying to struggle to get, you know, up to 15, 20 million. There is no distribution here, you know, that is helpful to anybody. And like Jamie, he only moved the needle about what, a point and a half, 2% in, in South Carolina there. Sarah Gideon underperformed Joe Biden by nine or 15 points. I can't remember what the number is now. Amy McGrath got beat. We dumped all of this money into the boogeyman places and everything else. And, and people raised and they did everything and it got us nowhere. And we're not investing in any of the other places that we can win. And the biggest thing is, it's not about whether you're in a red state or a blue state. It's about if you have a good candidate. And it really is. I mean, I'm in Oklahoma right now. Kendra Horn's within single digits in this race. I don't know if we're going to win it. I think we could. We have all the momentum. But 
Like it's all about the good candidates. This is supposed to be a 40 point race itself with Biden getting beat by what, 32 points in 2020. It's about the candidate and about being in the right place at the right time and having the right message. And I'm really disappointed with the party and the way that they approach this. And, and even in this election here, I've been really disappointed in the way that they're approaching their candidates and, and funding and everything else. It's, it's really a big problem. You try it as a candidate briefly. Now you're a staffer for Doug Jones. What's the sequence that allows you to start your own firm and kind of move from staff to consultant? The difference between going and doing one campaign and doing several at the same time, I guess, and, and doing it through a, a corporate name. How does that all happen for you? It all kind of just came naturally. After the Jones race, there's a guy down in Nashville. His name's John Rowley. And I went and worked with him. And uh, I, I knew then because I, I, I was starting to get a lot of offers for campaigns and helping out and doing that stuff. And I could have done multiple ones right at that moment. But I didn't know enough about the industry or being a entrepreneur in this field to really feel confident that I could take that on. And so I wanted to work with somebody who's been doing this a while and can really show me what it takes to actually like have a real firm and have a, a real business and not just the employees, but races and, and talking to the candidates multiple, you know, and how you schedule things. I just, I knew I wasn't ready right after Jones. And so, you know, John Rowley and I worked together when I was with him for the 2018 cycle there. That's kind of when I started kind of getting kicked off into everything else. But it really, it was kind of a natural transition, like when, you know, because I was getting Michigan and I was picking up these races and doing this, but I was also with Rowley at the time and really learning a lot about, you know, that team building and that firm building kind of stuff. That's kind of how it happened. And once the 2018 cycle got through, then I, I traveled the country. I was doing some PAC stuff and trying to educate people on social, meeting with members and that kind of stuff. And then uh, going into the, you know, the 2020 cycle, obviously we had Jones, we had a few other races. It was after that cycle that I decided decided finally to, to start the business and I felt like I was ready. Tell me about what you did to start it. You have a co-founder, right? Or Yeah, yep, I have a co-founder. Yeah, I'm sure her name's uh, Lisa Resnikoff. She's a former assistant U.S. attorney. She lives in Chicago, but she was a U assistant U.S. attorney in Philadelphia, Harvard business and everything else. Basically, she has all the accolades that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely like my Spock. My, I'm kind of the crazy strategy person and she's you know, really driven in the, the data and the detail. How did you meet her? So she was one of the founders of uh, Invest to Elect Illinois, part of the uh, Electing Women's Alliance, um, which is a big donor group. And uh, and I had been doing a presentation for them and she liked what I had to say about social media. And she was piqued because she hadn't really heard anybody talk about that before in the way that I do. So we started just kind of chatting and then Tom Perez was coming into town. I've been trying to get him to do more on social media for months. And it got to the point where like, he just ignored me, you know? And so he's coming into town and she's asking me these questions about social and why it's important and how it should work and everything else. And, uh, she was like, you know, should I ask him about this? And I was like, please like ask him like when he's there. Cause she's like, she's, um, presenting for this group and she's like basically hosting it, you know, she gets up there with them and she asks him straight up, like, why aren't we doing more on digital? He was like, Alicia, we have college kids that we hired. And that was his answer. And like, it, but for me in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, she's a badass. Like she went straight up to the chair of the Democratic Party in front of everybody and asked them like straight up why you're not getting this thing done. That was the moment I knew like she's amazing. And then her and I were friendly and for the next couple of years. And then uh, 
once the election got done, you know, I, I knew that in starting a, a business, I need somebody who has a lot more business experience and has that, you know, legal background, that mentality to be thorough and analytical like that. And so I called her up and you know, I was like, Hey, I, I think that it's time and I, I want to do this. You know, would you want to take an adventure with me? And she's like, absolutely. And then, you know, we just started rolling. So yeah, we've been doing this now for two years going on three. This cycle, who are you working for? Right now I'm with uh, Kendra and then I'm on Demcast um, and helping there. Um, and then I still got Doug Jones as well. So um, Demcast, I had Nick and Lori on talking about it. How did you get involved in that? And what is it from your perspective? Yeah, so um, and Demcast came about because of Doug Jones in 2017. We knew we needed a digital army, but with Doug, we, we built out that apparatus and we got everything rolling and going on it. And then afterwards, I talked to Nick and Lori, especially Nick, and I was like, you know, we need the 50 state digital strategy here. You know, we, we gotta, we gotta do this everywhere. We started talking about that. They went and started building out Demcast. And then, uh, you know, they were kind of doing their grassroots thing for a little bit. And I was as a friend kind of helping. And then I came on and started advising them last year straight up as officially. It's really an amazing thing how they built it and what they've been able to accomplish. Um, and like this year alone, I mean, you know, we ended up going against Russia with Ukraine and fighting disinformation. We beat Putin's stuff there four to one. And then, you know, Senator Jones had us help with uh, the Katanji Brown Jackson messaging online. We were really able to kind of pave the road there. Demcast has been able to, you know, help out in so many races and get so much information out there and everything else that, um, yeah, it's, it's been really incredible. And it, it really kind of, we all met back at the same time with, with Senator Jones and in that race and in that time frame and Trump kind of coming in. We, we were all getting our asses kicked at the same moment and, and trying to learn everything we could from each other. And that's kind of how it all came out. What do you think the prospects are for Demcast as a company? Oh, I think the Demcast has huge, huge, huge prospects. And I'm not just saying that because they're my buddies or I work with them. This is the future of how we campaign. And honestly, it's the future of modern warfare in, in between superpowers. We're not going to be just dropping bombs like between United States and Russia and doing that. God willing, hopefully not. But it's, it's the cultural change. It's the getting into social media and changing the conversation internally and doing this and fighting back on disinformation. And there's been a lot on this from NATO and the UN and everything else on, on that, you know, meme warfare, social media warfare and doing that kind of stuff. And it's a real thing. And it's very important. Demcast is the only group in the country that's doing that. And then on the other side of it, electorally, we need to have an apparatus that's going to fight back against the Republicans. They have their whole media machine. They have all the radio. We have all the TV. They have all the organization. And they're putting about $10 million a month into digital organizing, not to mention the $300 million that we just know of that Russia's put in since 20. So having Demcast, if we don't do this, like we are, we, we've walked away from TV. We've walked away from radio. We've walked away from just about everything you possibly can technology-wise. And if we walk away from social media and digital, it's over. That's the future of everything. Culturally, it's taken over our entire lives. And Demcast is the only real group out there. And there's a lot of really great groups that are doing things that are organizing. But Demcast is the only group that is really organizing like this, focusing on the persuasion and focusing on the disinformation campaigns, speaking with people who are experts in the field and learning more and gaining more and doing all this stuff. So it's absolutely critical. And the only fear I have is that our party doesn't think that social media matters and that, you know, they say that voters aren't online, only 7%. And 
I've been told social media is a fad and, you know, it's uh, going to be gone in five years and everything else. And so that's the, that's the thing that scares me because the Republican Party gets this and they're investing into it. The Democratic Party, they don't even understand why it's important or that it could be. Well, some people do. Um, some people do, like you. Yeah, like, that's well, why I'm here. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm, not just, I'm not really speaking about myself, but people I've talked to. I assume you used MCAST in the Kendra Horn campaign? Yep. Tell me about how you're doing that part of that campaign and how tools factor in. Yep. So yeah, Demcast is their amplifiers for something like this. So when we need to get a video out, that's important, or we need to get big messaging out, that kind of stuff, um, they're instrumental there. And also, you know, whenever I have people coming into digital that need to be trained that, you know, have no idea, um, you know, like what they're doing, you know, they may have never done social media before in their life. They may be, you know, the first time they just created Twitter and they, they want to do something and be a part of it and they have 200 followers, you know, how can we put them there and doing that? And I do a lot of that stuff too, but Demcast really helps kind of, you know, train people on, you know, effective use of hashtags or how to post a tweet, the basic stuff too. And then also the messaging persuasion, that kind of stuff. And so I, I utilize Demcast in a lot of different ways. Most of it is usually either amplification or persuasion and getting into like the comments and the replies and fighting back on the disinfo and, and that kind of stuff. The Horn campaign is not one of the probably most prominent races in the country, even though it's a U.S. Senate race. Are you still experiencing disinformation? Are you still experiencing uh, oh, yeah. the, uh, kind of a war in social media? Oh yeah. We got bots coming in every day, no followers and, and tweeting crap out. And we got, yeah, I mean, there's, there's disinfo, like they, you know, the Republicans on the other side come in and say that, you know, um, Kendra is against oil and gas when we have oil and gas executives who are endorsing us and doing that kind of stuff. And so like we got to push back on the facts, having that type of pushback there is really, really important. And, you know, in this one here, it's definitely not one of the loudest, biggest races. But this is where they can really be won and lost because there's also not all of that national focus that's coming into it as well. It's us versus Mark Wayne Mullen and he's not campaigning. They think they have this thing won. Yet if you're in Arizona or if you're in Wisconsin or you're in other places, you know, um, they, they're putting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into fighting back and doing it. And so, you know, different states have different levels of attention that they need to, to have into it. Um, to be able to, to fight back. Like, you know, a Wisconsin is going to need a lot more resources or, or North Carolina right now on that front because there's so much volume coming in from the other side. You know, on our side of it, it, they're hitting and there's still a lot of volume, but it's nowhere near like what it would be like, obviously, Alabama when we were the only race in the country or some of these other bigger premier races. What do you think you've learned new since sort of the first couple campaigns you've done What's changed from 2017 to now 2022? Hmm, that's a really good question. I mean, a lot's changed in the country. It's gotten a lot worse. There's a lot more hate and the campaigns on digital. I mean, it was bad back then. It's almost like, you know, when we first started talking on this call, you know, going back to that 2016 Hillary Clinton moment with my kids, I thought that that was as bad as it can get. It's way worse now. I mean, we have literally open racism, anti-Semitism, hatred, and everything else. So on that front of it, the the animosity and the vitriol in this country has gotten worse. But on the campaign side of it, honestly, we haven't really changed that much. 
on the party side of it, we're tweeting a little bit more and we're getting into it, but we see social media more as a fundraising tool than a persuasion tool or as an organizing or anything there. So like we're doing a little bit better here. We we're starting to to move towards it a little bit, but not enough. I'd say five percent of where we need to be. I mean, I feel like we're making just about all of the same mistakes that we've been making for the last twenty five years still. In terms of, you know, campaigning and the way we're doing things or our emails or I don't feel like enough has changed. You know, we're still too heavily focused on TV. I mean, way too heavily focused on TV when we can be outreaching voters in a lot of different ways here. And that's one of the biggest issues that I have with the party right now is I know that media is important and I agree that it's important. I utilize it in every race that I'm doing, but it's not the silver bullet anymore. We have to stop going from putting 70% of our funds into TV and starting to put a lot more of that into digital, not just paid digital, but like an organizing digital field and communications and video and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, until we do that, we're going to keep seeing these issues. And same thing with polling. That's what probably the biggest thing I'll say since 2016 to now. Our polling has gone from being semi-accurate to not being accurate at all. Carol Maloney earlier this year, she was down 2% in New York City. She got beat by over 30%. You know, you have uh, Jones in 2020. You know, our internals had us up going into those last days on the campaign. You know, we got beat by 20 points. The biggest thing I'll say, you know, that has changed has been our ability to pull accurately. And I think a big piece of this is because we're not utilizing social media too, because you have a sentiment score online and you can actually scientifically take like that sentiment score off a basic tracker and, and put that with your polling and it actually gives you more accurate results like on the scientific level on it or whatever. We're still calling landlines and polling that way. And I think that that's probably the biggest problem because, you know, there's no way for us on a campaign to really glean any information out of this stuff. We can't trust any of the polls. My general sense is that we're likely to do worse than the polls, probably substantially in this midterm. What do you think and why? I know why you'd think that. And I tend to agree, but after I saw Kansas, that really woke me up that there could be something else happening here. The governor race is, is unexpectedly close. You wouldn't think the Democrat would have a chance in Oklahoma typically, but how is that affecting your race and what are you seeing there? Yeah. And it's not just the governor's race. The state superintendent race is very close as well. There's a testament here to What's happening in this country? I think that the extremism has gone too far. You know, what we saw like in Kansas, what we saw in Alaska, it's that the Republicans, I think, have finally gotten to the point, the MAGA Republicans, where they, they have finally broken away from the traditional ones. In this race, I mean, we've had the former Speaker of the House, the former party chair. We've had, God, I mean, oil and gas executives, like all these were major, major, major Republicans in the state coming out and endorsing us. Because Mark Wayne Mullins is such a lunatic. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, they're really terrified about what that does for business and, and economically. The fact that he's saying things like, you know, if you don't like what we do, get out of my state, you know, so that's, that's a big piece of this. But, you know, that's not just our race. I mean, we're seeing it, obviously, with Joy and with Gina, too. So I don't think it's just Oklahoma. I just think that this is kind of the canary in a coal mine kind of thing, that the fact that Oklahoma is even in play and we're talking about this kind of tells us that there's something happening in this country underneath. I think that they finally have gone far enough or too far where the traditional conservatives who are still about freedom and love their country and just want to get back to fight like we used to, I think that 
they're breaking away. So I'm not sure on this election because traditionally this is really bad. You know, midterm year, president usually gets their asses kicked. Biden, his approval numbers aren't very solid and strong. Obama was pulling about, what, 7% higher, 9% higher at this time in 2010. Or was it 2010? Yeah, when um, the midterms happened in that one. We lost 70 seats or 63 seats with Obama when that happened. You know, so historically, this is really bad for the president's party who's in power. But the circumstances are way different now. And I think that the abortion laws and the bans that they're doing, I mean, they're openly embracing anti-Semitism now and they're, you know, racism and like they're, I, I think that there's this shift and people are starting to kind of wake up to it. I'm talking to people who worked in the Trump White House. I told you about the first tweet I ever had, like, you know, and like now like these, you know, people who are there are coming out and they're like, what can we do to save democracy? It's like unbelievable. One of uh, Mike Pence's national security people I was talking with and she was saying that to me and it's like, oh my God, like I hate you. I never thought I would work with you, but I'm glad you are. And I'm glad that we're back to being patriots again and, you know, and, and getting together. Why does it seem like a election denier like Carrie Lake is moving ahead in Arizona, why does it seem like that the leaders in that party are thriving with a Trump line? Oh, I mean, because it works. It's the populist line. You know, it's it's easy, you know, for them to jump onto. But if you think Republicans are peeling away, why, why aren't they punishing people like that in aggregate? Well, we're going to see it. Yeah, we will. I hope you're I hope the optimism yeah. I don't want to say that it's like a blanket thing. There's districts and there's pockets in this country where extremism is going to be a lot stronger or the, you know, that brand. I mean, if you have a choice, you know, if, in some of these places between, you know, a Democrat and a Republican and, you know, this is a strong Republican area and sometimes it's a little bit harder just to break through on there. But honestly, I mean, I believe a lot of this has to do with our communications too. We're not effectively communicating with people. Like, I don't understand why there isn't a overarching narrative for this election that defends the work we've done and highlights the danger they are. And I see pieces of it here and there, but it doesn't seem like it's unified and articulated well. No, I mean, it's not. And I always feel like when I'm talking to people, I always harp on social media, but we're not there. Like, you know, we going out and, and having green fly and saying, hey, here's a picture of the president eating pizza with the troops. Post this out everywhere. That's not organizing and that's not getting our message out. That's not telling people what we're doing and doing these classes or training sessions and basically just droning on a call and telling people how to click a bunch of buttons on mobilize or doing whatever. That's not enough. Like we we don't we don't show up on these places anymore to have these like conversations with people. But also, we're not showing up in real life either. Like, my hometown in Barberton is the strongest Democratic stronghold probably in Ohio, I mean, for like 70 years. And they just went red everywhere in the last municipal election. These people, they were like, if you're Republican, get out of our city. Like, we hate you. And it went complete, like, Republican in the last election there because we don't show up. You know, the Republicans go there. They show up to the gun shows. They show up at the bars. They talk to people and they do that. We don't. Ah, that pains me. If, Me if, too. You, if you were, I don't know, executive director at the DTRIP or the DS, what would you change? Well, first I would, I would take how much money we're spending on TV and I would cut that. 
the requirement for the DSCC getting involved into a, a race would be a lot less your requirement for TV. That would be one of them. I would update the preferred vendor list out there. We haven't had a lot of change in that, that vendor list in a lot of years, and that's a big piece of it. I would hire Demcast immediately and bring them into helping out with building a true 50-state digital infrastructure and strategy with persuasion and doing it and getting that done. We could have 500,000 people within the next two years activated online at 10,000 a state. There's a lot there. I would really reevaluate the way that we're doing our polling and have some conversations about how we can be more accurate with this. And we need a better program to be able to get the the party coordinated again and messaging out there. I know that like it exists, like there's talking points that kind of get sent out and things like that. But like there's not really any talking points that's going out to everybody. On the Democratic side, like a really good friend of mine, his name's Rick Smith. He's got his radio show and he's the last grassroots radio show out there. He's got like 60 stations and he's running it from his shed. He's funded by unions and he's barely funded and he gets no surrogate list. Like, like getting guests is like pulling teeth for him and that stuff. But every week, like the Republicans send him a list of these are the Republicans we can get you on, you have on the show and this is what they can talk about and doing that, you know, the celebrity side of it for them. They're much more organized on that stuff. And they're funding those types of things like YouTube channels on the Republican side. They're funding, you know, if someone's got 5,000, 10,000 followers, they're still getting 10,000 bucks a month from them just to go on YouTube and just say shit, you know? So like we have to be smarter about where we're putting our money and we really have to be innovative and start thinking about the future and start planning not just right now, but also the next 10 and 20 years out. We need to start researching the South. We need to start building out these communities and helping the party get built down in these places too. Like Louisiana, there's no reason, Mississippi, that these places are still as red as they are with the populations that they have. We're not cultivating the new voters. We're losing college kids right now, like especially college young men to the Republicans. We're only focusing on what we've always focused on. We don't understand as a party right now that the world has changed and it's rapidly changing so fast that we can't even barely keep up with it. What I would do there would be to try to innovate as much as I possibly can and plan for the future. And right now, I just don't feel like that there's any thought about that at all. I hope there is some thought about it. I suspect there is some, but I also suspect that it would be smart for them to talk to you. What do you want to turn Endeavor Digital Group, your company, into over time? What would you like to see it become? I'd like it to see it become this, like, you know, what we're talking about here. I, I want to be a part of that movement going forward, you know, and, and being able to help innovate. And if I got to be remembered for anything in this industry, it would be as the guy who never was afraid to get into the fight and found the candidates out there in the hard races and, and always went there. I want to be a part of that. I want to ha- I want to help build those people up. And I also want to help move this party forward in terms of, you know, getting them to take digital seriously, building out the 50 state digital infrastructure we have to have happen, innovating the way we do polling and, and the way that we do our persuasion and messaging and email. That's the work I really want to be a part of more and, you know, help move forward. So that's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not about like, you know, the, the financial stuff or the money stuff or the success. I, I love winning and everything else, but really for me, I, I, I get the most satisfaction out of being creative and, and doing things no one's ever done before and seeing how it goes. It's like being a crazy person and they, they gave me the keys, you know, to everything I want to do. That's where I want to be. I really just want to see our party be what its potential could be. I feel like right now we're, we're nowhere near like what we've accomplished and what we've gotten done 
and the way that the moderates are able to get stuff, we're selling ourselves way, way, way short. And we're not doing a good job at, at that, you know, that interview process, you know, that we're having with the American people. And, you know, I want to be a part of that. I want to make it better. And I, I know I can because every race I'm on, it's either close or, you know, we, we end up coming back and, and winning. And I'm not on the easy races. I'm not on the ones that, you know, it's like, you know, you're within a plus or minus a three or whatever. I take them on 20 plus or more. And so I, I know that there's an effectiveness there, but I, I want to see what we're doing in these underdog races start happening in the more, you know, traditional party side of it. I mean, there's some of this that's happening right now, but I mean, not nearly enough, not nearly enough. And it's, it's really holding us back. And I want to be a part of the group that gets to move us forward. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I mean, I thought you were pretty damn thorough. Hmm. Is there anything else you want to say? It's like we're at end game number one. And then as soon as November happens, we're in end game number two here. The Avengers was like, it's like at like 2024 is the, the okay corral is the final battle. Like if we lose in 24 democracies over and this year is the start of that. If we don't win this year, it's going to be the start of, what's going to happen next. And it's going to be a lot harder for us to catch up with it. So make a plan, go out there, vote your ass off, like get your family with you, have fun. Like, but make, we got to show up. Like if we don't show up, we're going to lose. Yep. I think you're right. It may be an uphill battle with a recession and things like that. So it's, we're going to need all, all hands on deck. Well, especially because I mean, at our next cycle here, you know, like, the, if we think the Senate map is rough in this one, it's way worse. Yeah. It's no. way, way worse. Yeah. And, you know, and if the party doesn't innovate and if we don't start moving things forward, I mean, we're in trouble. Like we're in danger right now, not just of losing an election, but losing our country. And a lot of the time, I don't think that the Democratic Party thinks about that. Oh, they're thinking about it. I think they're thinking I, about it. I don't know. Like, I think that they think about it in a sense of, I just you know, don't the think they, I'm not and, sure they know how to stop it, but. Or we know how to stop it. But we are the Democratic yeah. Party. I, I hear what you're saying. I think that they're thinking about it, but they're not taking action to do anything. They're, they're playing politics while the other side's playing war. We need to get a lot tougher and we need to get a lot more into this and, and stop twiddling our thumbs and thinking, are we going to get in trouble for saying this or saying that or, you know, whatever. I mean, we have to get into the fight right now. And I don't feel like we're there. You know, we're still playing the same political strategy games that we've been playing for 30 years, and we're not really digging into it. And that really worries me. In 2016, when Trump won, I thought for sure, like, it's over. Like, people are like the first time that, you know, we protest and they start knocking heads, like everybody's just going to shut up and, and go back to their houses. And no, like, I mean, the resistance showed up and I never saw that coming, like the power that it did. Now that we're going into it where we are now, I won't ever discount the power of the people out there who are pissed off and want something to happen. But I don't feel like the party is matching that energy. And I feel like that's a big reason why there's a little bit of lethargic, you know, this to us on the base. And my problem is, is I'm kind of like three people, right? There's like the candidate politician guy, and then there's the consultant, and then there's the activist. And I still very much think of myself as the activist out there with the digital armies that I'm helping. And I see it from all three perspectives. And 
it's not always good. You know, it's a guy named Mark Riddle from Future Majority. He goes, you can't be all three things. He goes, you can only be one thing. He's like, you can either be a consultant, you or you can be the activist, or you can be the candidate or a politician. He's like, you can't be all three, you know, but it kind of is that way. And um, I, I don't know if he's right. I know, I know Mark, and I think it's okay to bring more than one perspective. It's always hit me that way. I feel like a party is just not matching the energy of the base. We got to pick it up. And I'm always going to be a little bit more critical, I think, than maybe even I should be on a professional level or whatever. But I don't know. It's like I have to poke them with a stick a little bit and we have to get some shit done. And I hope that, you know, the the people of this country really are fed up enough. And what we're seeing in Oklahoma and what we've seen in Kansas and we saw in Alaska is going to translate out there, especially for the House. But if we can't keep the House at least you know, the Senate, we have amazing candidates in this one. Like, it's not always that we have like a Kendra Horn or we have a Sherry Beasley or we have a Val Demings or we have a Fetterman show up like that, or we have Tim Ryan or... We have incredibly good candidates this time. For their sake, I almost wish for them that they picked a different time personally, even though I'm proud and and happy that they ran this time and I hope they win. Yeah, but there's no other time. Yep. There's no I more. Mean, We're at the end of the line here. You know, I mean, at 24, I mean, it really could be the end of democracy. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud, but it could be. If it's Trump or one of his copiers, he's certainly going to make an effort to to make sure that he can't lose the next time or that his offspring can't or whatever. And if we lose the House this time and the Senate... You know, I mean, basically that effectively is going to cripple Biden's agenda. All the things that we've done for the American people over the last two years. He'll, he will have them to run against and hopefully they'll overreach. But yeah, it's it's scary. I agree with you. I'm scared, too. I'm glad you're out there fighting the fight. I hope that you can get an upset. That would be spectacular. I appreciate you taking the time and and let's stay in touch. OK. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time for me and what you're doing. And I have a huge respect for for what you've done in your career and what you're doing now to help amplify this stuff and, and move us forward. I'm a big supporter. So I'm happy to come on anytime. Thank you so much. That was David Yankovic. He is at David Yankovic on Twitter, if that's still around. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.